The following program is a presentation of Grace Communion International and Grace Communion Seminary and is made possible by generous donations from viewers like you. On this episode of You're Included, theologian and author Dr. Ray Anderson discusses a range of topics including the prodigal son, adoption, and the emergent church. Our host is Dr. J. Michael Fazell. Thanks for coming back. and I'm happy to be back with you, Mike. Last time we were together, we were talking about Karl Barth, Thomas Torrance, uh, whom you studied under, yeah. and uh, Trinitarian theology, and how important that is yes. for the walk of the average Christian. You see, uh, the New Testament doesn't use the word Trinity. But it's like um, every case, we have to uh, think out out of the reality of the fact that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. John says that, and Paul said, in him are the fullness of the God that dwells bodily. John says, he is the divine Logos that was with God from the beginning, has now become flesh and dwelt among us. So if we accept that as the true narrative of Jesus' life, the incarnation, then the answer to the question, well, where is God in all of this? Well, God is both above and below. Our God is, is entirely God, both as the one above us and the one with us. See? God is the one carried off into captivity. God is the one with them in their captivity. He, God is the one that comes out of captivity with them. But all at the same time, God is the one above them. See? Now, in the New Testament, what was implicit or nascent has now come to birth, has now come into reality through Jesus, who can now say everything that was uh, intimated by the presence of Yahweh in the Old Testament uh, is embodied in me. I am the temple. Um, the, the temple uh, is now within me. I embody the reality of God with you. And if you allow yourself to think in narrative form, like a story, then you can hold that together. The, advantage, the real advantage of a narrative theology is that it, it can hold together what otherwise would simply be paradox and uh, we'd have to come up with one view or the other. So the Trinity then is a way in which the narrative of God's reality <coughs> can be both the one who created the world and is sovereign above us, but he's also the one that's entered in along with us. <coughs> and the problem <coughs> that we often face is how do we connect the reality of our doctrine of God with the reality of people's lives? And I say we do that in narrative form. Every person has a narrative. It's their life. It's their suffering, their losses, their pain, their questions they're raising. Where is God in my life? That's their narrative. So, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the narrative of humanity. There's also a narrative. God said, I hear their cry, the Old Testament. I've heard them in Egypt. I love them. And because of my love, I'm going to come to them. I'm going to, re I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to bring them out. And they will be a sign that I love and, and, and am willing to include all the families of the earth. So there's that narrative of God's love and God's grace. Now, the job of pastoral ministry is to connect those two narratives. 
When I first became a pastor, I was called to the home of a woman, a friend of one of my members. She was in her 30s, dying of cancer, terminal stage, two or three small children. Um, her priest had been there uh, and prayed, and she was uh, in pain and uh, in a lot of anger about God. So uh, would I go and see her? I did. And she said, why would God allow this to happen? Where is God in my life? <clears throat> Here I am with my uh, small children. Why would God do this to me? And instinctively I said, <clears throat> he can't do anything about it. Well, she said, don't we have to believe that God is powerful and can do anything? I said, no, I guess not. Well, then she said, where is God? I looked on the wall of her bedroom. And on the wall was a cross with a little figure of Jesus on it. She was Roman Catholic. I said, there he is. He's there on the cross. He's with us. He's in this very room. That's how he, that's how he comes to us. Oh, she said, I never knew that before. I never realized that was just a, a cross. You mean to say that that's a sign that he is here with me now, going through this with me? I said, yeah, he's been here. He's done this. He's, he's going through what you're going through. He's experienced dying. You can do it with him. He can be with you in that. Oh, she said, I can do it now. I prayed with her. She died two weeks later. Now I went back and I said, okay, what have I done? <laughs> I've just denied God's sovereignty and power over everything. Because that's what I was taught in seminary. But her narrative of her living and dying <coughs> enabled me to then look back in the, the tradition of the scriptures and find that's true. That's, that's, that's also true. That's where God was. He was with them in exile. He went into them with exile. And Jesus is the narrative of God's presence with us in dying. Well, um, yes, the Trinity then becomes the theological way of saying that's true. Everything I said is true because God is both God above us as creator and Lord and God is both God with us. So the Trinity is a way of simply saying what my narrative of faith tells me is really true. And so to, to teach the doctrine of the Trinity apart from that narrative uh, it just becomes a doctrine. So that's, that's how I think the Trinity is relevant <clears throat> because it places God in our narrative. The narrative of God's uh, life and of salvation is, is part of our narrative story. And the, the task of us as pastors is to bring those narratives together. And if we just preach truth about God and people's own narrative of struggle in life and faith is just left lying there. We haven't connected. We send them home without that connection. The, connect, the, 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 the struggle that, that people have when they go to church, they hear the sermon, and they come away feeling more condemned than even when they got there because they hear God wants holiness. Hmm. God yeah. wants obedience. They hear condemnation of sin, whether it's national sin or sin in this community or sins among the congregation. They're told we need to do better. You need to repent of your sins mm -hmm. and improve. And they come away with more of a, a sense of failure than a sense yes. of 
connection with God. Trinitarian theology is a way of looking at God through Christ so that we see things as they are in our relation with God as opposed to this. Um, yeah, yes, but on the other hand, we have to then press the point if, uh, if God has become human, what has God become in becoming human? God has become the sinner, which simply means without personal sin. He still has a death nature. He's going to die of something because he has assumed death as a consequence of original sin. So that what God has assumed in becoming human is to assume for God forsakenness, to assume that condition. And for that then to be lived out uh, is part of the narrative of the Trinity uh, at work, so to speak. So that the Trinity is uh, uh, the work of God. It's always something that God is doing in our midst. And therefore, <coughs> we, <coughs> we have to... Uh, bring that into people's lives in, in ways that connect with them. Now, um, if then, as I say in the book on Judas, if, if, if God has in fact um, assumed death for everyone, then as Karl Barth said, all are reconciled. So Barth in an unusual way speaks of Jesus not as the Redeemer, but as the reconciler, that uh, Jesus came to reconcile humanity to God. Now, there's a good text for that in Second um, Corinthians 5, where Paul says, God has reconciled the world to himself, no longer counting trespasses and sins against them. That's Paul, not Bart, not Torrance. God has reconciled the world through Christ, no longer counting their sin against them. Well, he said, then Paul said, and we become ambassadors. We say, now you be reconciled to God. See? So Bard says, all are reconciled, but not all are redeemed. The Holy Spirit's the redeemer. Here's where Trinitarian theology comes in. It allows us to say that God loves the whole world. God is not willing that any should perish. All are included in God's love. No one stands outside of God's mercy and love. Jesus came to assume humanity and death as a common human condition for everyone. All are included. When Paul says in Galatians 2.20, uh, I am crucified with Christ. Every human being can say that. Every human being is crucified with Christ. Paul says, nonetheless I live. And I live by the Spirit of Christ in me. See? That's Trinitarian, isn't it? God loves the world. He sent his only begotten Son. But who's our belief? Jesus, as the only begotten Son, has reconciled the whole world, passed through death, destroyed the power of death. And then the Holy Spirit is the Redeemer. The Holy Spirit's the one that is to transform us. Nobody gets into heaven without being redeemed. The question is, uh, when does that happen? In the case of Judas, you see, I argue that Judas was redeemed after he committed suicide. I want to uh, just read paragraph or two from sure, the book, yes. if you don't mind, yes. at, at that point. <laughs> to see if I still agree with it. Judas and Jesus, Amazing Grace for the Wounded Soul, formerly... Um, the Gospel According to Judas the gospel was my first... The Gospel According to Judas, yes. 
was the first uh, edition. On page 116, in the voice of Judas, the other eleven survived despite their own misconceptions and went on to become apostles of the risen Lord. Their calling may not serve as a model for your own calling from God. My own story is different from theirs. My calling as a disciple was indeed forfeited through my death, but my calling as a child of God's kingdom was restored and secured through his resurrection. I could not become his apostle, but I could become his friend, John 15, 13 to 14. Jesus did appear to me as the resurrected Lord in the place where I believed there was no forgiveness. And he said to me, my choosing of you counts more than your betrayal of me. Through his grace, I discovered that the calling of God by which we become children of the kingdom does not rest upon our faith alone, but upon his faithfulness toward us. That speaks to not just, well, Trinitarian theology in the sense of our connectedness because we've been made connected by God's grace through Christ. Yes, you see what I did in that book. Uh, I first of all traced the uh, the story of Judas and Jesus in the sense to the very end when Judas betrays him. But then the last chapter I wrote that as if Judas was now writing it. Started out, Judas said, you know, um, I never had a chance to write my gospel. That's why I called it the gospel according to Judas, which the last chapter is still called that. See? Judas said, this is, this is the gospel I know. Unfortunately, I, in my own remorse, I killed myself. I didn't have a chance for that. Now's my chance. Now I'm going to tell you. I'm going to preach the gospel to you. Even though I died, committed suicide, I've met Jesus after I died, and he, he's brought me back to life, so to speak. Now, I'm going to tell you about this, Jesus. So that I use Judas there, in a sense, as a preacher of the gospel from the, the dark side, the deep side. And I've discovered that uh, in the narrative of people's lives, more people identify with Judas than with Jesus. I've not found many people say, well, I have a real affinity for Jesus. No, Jesus, you know, he's, he's up there. He's perfect, I'm not. But Judas, yeah, yeah. I could have done what Judas did. I have feel that. After I published the first edition of this, one of my students was a chaplain in the L.A. County Jail System. She took, uh, she went and visited at that time one of the brothers uh, who had killed their parents. A very famous trial took place years ago. And uh, he said to her, um, do you think Judas will be in heaven? Well, she said, it's interesting. My professor's written a book about that. She got me to sign it. She took the copy into him. Later on, she sent word to me and said, he wants to talk with you. So I got permission to go in and sit on the attorney's bench. They brought him in, shackled, and sat him down, shackled him to the bench. And he pulled out of his pocket a copy of the Gospel according to Judas. Opened it up. He had underlined it here and there. And he said, uh, can Judas be saved? Will God forgive the sins of Judas? And I said, um, 
You killed your mother and your father. You reloaded the shotgun. Blew your mother's face away. Suppose that when you die, God presents you in front of your parents and says to your parents, I give you permission to dispose of your son however you want, heaven or hell. It's your decision. What will your parents say? He paused. Boy, he said, that's a tough one. He said, my mother will forgive me. My mother will forgive me. I said, then you know that Jesus will too. He says, is that true? I said, yes. Jesus can forgive you. And he's still in prison and he believes that. Now, um, here again, see, that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book for people who somehow condemn themselves and uh, feel they've shamed themselves. And while they're not as desperate as that, uh, still many people come to church and they carry within them a, a little silent guilt that's never taken away. They go through liturgy of confession and, and they believe uh, the gospel, but they carry with them shame and guilt. And you see, the purpose of redemption is not just to save us, uh, justify us because of our faith. It's to transform us. It's to liberate us. It's to heal us from that. And that's the terrible thing and the heresy of legalism. It's shaming. It's self-condemning. It's so contrary to the gospel that we need to eradicate it. We need to preach that gospel of grace. Now, people are afraid of that. So they say, well, if Judas can be saved, everybody can. And then we have this uh, debate going on now that Brian McLaren is involved in. Uh, he wrote the foreword for my book on uh, emergent theology, charged with universalism, that maybe God will save everyone. And if all have been reconciled, you see, you come back to the doctrine of the Trinity again. God loves the whole world, not willing any should perish. Through Jesus Christ, the whole world has been reconciled. God no longer counts their sin against them. Well, why do we then? If God isn't trying to preach sin against sin to people, why are we doing that? But then you see, Jesus has sends the Holy Spirit, who is the Redeemer. It's the Holy Spirit that enters in and transforms. Uh, but Karl Barth said, all have been um, justified and sanctified de jura, the Latin word, in principle. But not all have been sanctified de facto. As a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit is the Redeemer. History is still open. It's not a closed book. Now, the question then of universalism comes, is it possible that even after death there can be some redemption? Well, there are some theologians. Forsyth, a Scottish theologian, said there will be more people converted after death than before. Now, people haven't, you know, he wrote that 100 years ago. And Karl Barth says, hey, be careful. Don't close the book on God. We don't know whether or not God's a universalist. <laughs> we can hope so. We have no right to say that. So if anybody is a universalist and eventually is going to enable everyone to be redeemed, only God can do that. Now, uh, we don't encourage people to wait for that. We preach the gospel now. But we, do, we, we should remember that universalism is uh, just the other side of the coin of limited atonement. Calvin taught limited atonement. That only those that God had elected for salvation are actually redeemed, the rest are not. Universalism wants to say, no, everybody is elected and redeemed. Well, both of them are the same sides of a, 
of a, of a coin uh, that simply is minted out of human speculation. Whereas the gospel of God's grace is more dynamic than that. Uh, so that the Holy Spirit yearns and struggles with people to bring them in. So the doctrine of the Trinity saves us from universalism, at the same time arguing for the universal love of God for all and the universal act of God through Jesus on behalf of all. But the Holy Spirit is the contingent factor there. So part of the issue is that with legalism, we're talking about absolution from sins committed, and we, on, we only think that far. Whereas with Trinitarian theology, we're talking about a relationship in which not just forgiveness of sins committed, but a restoration of relationship, a healing of ourselves, our minds, so that sinfulness itself is healed not just a yes. uh, on paper you see, forgiving. You uh, if, if we go uh, through a worship service and uh, if whatever form of liturgy we have, if we have any, we confess our sins, we've sinned before you, God, and done the things we ought not to have done and so on. And then the pastor or someone will say, I announce now uh, on the basis of your confession, you are now absolved and freed from all your sins. But people go home and they're still filled with shame, with guilt. He went to a medical doctor and he said, you know, you've got a brain tumor, but I've touched your head and I pronounced some words and you're healed. See? Well, you go home and you're dead within six weeks of the brain tumor. The doctor can be sued for malpractice. Forgiveness of sins and pronouncing of absolution without there being a transformation is spiritual malpractice. Now that's a little strong. But the fact is uh, that redemption means that we are being transformed from darkness into light. Now, what legalism does, it makes that conditional upon our faith. Uh, John MacLeod Campbell was a Scottish theologian in the 19th century, and he went out to, as a young preacher and he began to preach that Scottish theology, except you repent, you cannot be saved. So every sermon started out, you are sinners, you need to repent of your sin, and now that you've repented, I can offer you the gospel, the good news. Next Sunday, you say, now, you may think you've repented enough, but you probably haven't. So let's repent again in order that I can pronounce the gospel to you. Sunday after Sunday, see, that's what he was told to preach, conditional repentance, salvation. And found out that the people were depressed and filled with shame. So he thought it over again. He said, no, the good news is that Christ has not only died for us, he's repented for us. So he taught the doctrine of vicarious repentance, that Christ uh, has taken up our lives and repented for us. Now, the gospel is enter in and join that journey. He's repented for you. He's repenting with you. <clears throat> and uh, your relationship with him is now unconditional. It's not conditioned upon your repentance upon your But grace draws you into that relationship. Grace doesn't just free you from the law. When Jesus said to the woman in John 8, uh, who committed adultery, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. I tell my students, I say, well, uh, supposing that in a few weeks they come back to Jesus and say, you know that woman you let off the hook, you didn't condemn her, she's not doing it again. And he'll say, bring her to me. I'm the only one that never condemned her. 
And then I'll tell her, I didn't just free her from the law. I bound her to me. Have you been discipling her? <laughs> because you see, that's the gospel is not that we're just freed from the law, do whatever we can. Why? As Paul said, we're brought under the, the law of the Spirit now in Romans 8. We're brought into that new relationship. It's like a child who's been in an orphanage, is redeemed from the orphanage, brought into a family. Now he, uh, he has to learn what it is to be a member of the family. In the orphanage, he learned how to beat the system. He learned to keep the rules. He learned to manipulate the system. And that's what legalism is. It's manipulating the system, manipulating God. But the child brought into the family, adoption, he's got to say, no, you, don't, you, don't, you, you can't do that here. You must, you must respect others at the table. You must eat when we eat. You must be part of the family life. You, we, we aren't just here to feed you. We aren't just here to clothe you. We're here to make you a child of the family. It's going to take years. So sanctification is like a child being adopted, brought into the family. And that's where we are as Christians. But see, that's a gracious thing. And you never again can you um, lose that, see. I have an adopted grandson. And uh, he asked his mother, it was an open adoption, so he knew he was adopted. When he was three or four years old, he said to his mother, my daughter, he said, you know, uh, someday you and dad are probably going to give me away like my birth mother did. Now here's a four-year-old saying that. And my daughter instinctively said, no, we can't do that if we wanted to because we took you to a judge here in Pasadena and uh, we've got the signed papers and he said, uh, you can never again give him away. He, he belongs to you forever. Oh, he said, okay. A month or two later, he was with his younger brother and riding along, he said, you know, you better be careful. Mom and dad can give you away, but they can't give me away. <laughs> now, you see, that's what adoption means spiritually. We are brought in. And uh, decision is made for us, and we're we're now participating in that new family. So that overcomes the the threat of universalism, saying, "Well, it's a free pass out of jail." It's not that at all. It's being brought into the family. Much of universalism has the idea that, or it loses the idea that there is a necessary connection. Yes. With Christ. That's right. Uh, that must take place. Redemption must take place. Yeah. And uh, you see, if universalism is simply uh, another, uh, the other side of the coin, means that, well, now everybody's going to be saved, and God has to save Regardless everybody. of what they do or that's think. That's right. Yeah. And Bart says, you know, that's preposterous on two grounds. First of all, uh, God is not going to bring anybody into heaven that is not redeemed. And secondly, God has the freedom in the end. So in my book on Judas and in my other writings, I, I say, who, who makes the final? If death doesn't determine our destiny, who does? Well, it's God. Well, how does God do that? Well, Paul said there's a judgment seat of Christ. Two or three places, Paul said, it's Jesus that's the final judge. So as I told that man in prison, I said, you know, you're going to have to face Jesus someday, like your mother. And if you believe that your mother has maternal instincts for you, Jesus has even stronger instincts for you. He died for you. He loved you. You can trust that. But I said, uh, that's going to be an incredible event. So that uh, the, the, the Jesus who makes the final judgment, I ask my students, 
Does Jesus simply read a transcript? Does he read a list of names, hand it to him? Does somebody hand Jesus a list of names and say, okay, just read the names, you're the final? Oh, no. Jesus makes real judgment. Jesus makes decisions, eternal decisions concerning human beings after they've died. That's what Paul says. He's the judge. If, if everything was all decided, like Calvin said, you could have a clerk of the court read the list. Wouldn't need a judge. No, you need a judge. You need somebody. And we know who that judge is. The judge is the one sent by the Father to die for us. And the one who has sent his Holy Spirit to uh, bring us into that uh, trusting relationship with him. So that's, to me, that's how the Trinity works here. It's, again, but it's narrative. It's not simply a, an empty, formal, abstract doctrine. It, has, it can only be told as a story. That's why I use stories. I use anecdotes. Because that's how the, the, the Scripture uses narrative and story to, to get across these points. So the prodigal son, uh, when, when does the father really start to love him? Well, he loved him all the way. So the, the son comes back and says, I'm not worthy to be your son. And he tries to repent. He thinks that I need to come back and repent. And if I repent, at least I will be given a position as a slave in the house. He comes back. He rehearsed his repentance speech. Father, I've sinned against you and before heaven. I'm not worthy to be your son. So when the father sees him from afar off, Jesus said, the father sees him coming from afar off. And he rushes out to meet him. And he interrupts his speech. He said, you know, forget your speech. You don't have to repent. Kill the fatted calf. Come on in, because my love. So the Father uh, has loved him. So there is a death and resurrection at the threshold of the Father's house in that parable. The Son has to die to his own um, self of being a, a servant and, and be born again. The Son is born again, so to speak, because the Father has a right to do that. And in fact, the Son never lost his sonship. He thought he did. From the father, so that parable is powerful, and so often that story is simply told as a parable um, to make some point without drawing out the the deep theological implications of it. If we're all prodigals, then we have a father waiting at home. Why does the son come back to the father if he wants just to be a servant? There are plenty of places along the way to hire himself out. What brings him back to his father to be a servant? Because there's a homing instinct. Every human being has a homing instinct. And when we preach, we're preaching to that. We're trying to awaken that. We're trying to, and you don't awaken the homing instinct by uh, condemning. You don't awaken the homing instinct in people to come back to the Father by reminding but them there's no he good. Knows that, he knows that. that his Father actually treats the slaves well, too. Yeah, sure, at least, you know, he's that. <laughs> Probably so not. there's something there drawing him back. So theologically, Every human being has that. Now, they have concealed it, they, and sometimes it's so corrupted that it doesn't work. But you're preaching not to a sinner, you're preaching to a prodigal. And prodigals are not brought back by condemnation. So that's how I preach that story, that's, and that's the theological truth of that. See, that's why, um, you know, trying to make people sinners, Jesus never... The only pe people that Jesus condemned as being sinners were the self-righteous. Yeah, uh, in, in Jesus' preaching, and even in the uh, even in the preaching of the apostles, in the few sermons we have, we find condemnation coming up only 
with the self-righteous or, yes. or just in the sense of the execution of Jesus, a couple of, of comments about that in Peter or Paul, but in the context of that he did this for redemption. Yes, that's right. There isn't, yeah, there yeah. isn't the, the kind of you killed we the, hear in, uh, Peter's uh, sermon on Pentecost, you killed the Messiah. Uh, but he came to save you. you know, God graciously gave you that, and, and that's the good news, see. And, that, and when they realized, well, what must we do to be saved? Well, repent, see. Well, the fact is their repentance was simply uh, to enter into the good news, that the one you killed is your savior. So however bad you feel about feeling that, um, that's already taken care of. So that uh, even Calvin said in his Institutes, I say even Calvin, because Calvin has been treated uh, sometimes uh, so, as so maligned. Calvin said, no one can truly repent except they have received the grace of God. So that repentance follows grace, doesn't precede it. Repentance and belief are same Coin, Same, it? and they're part of a new relationship. So I, I ask my students, uh, or when I preach, I say, now, uh, what happened the next morning after the prodigal son came back? See, I'm always curious about the next mornings. What's it like after that? And I say, well, the prodigal son said to his father, you know, father, I want to go back to the far country. And the father said, what? Go back there again? Yes, he said, I need to go back and because I, 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 I said you're a bad father. I maligned you. I said bad things about you. I want to go back and say, you're a good father. I want to go back to the far country and preach the good news. That's truly repentance. He tried to, re through repentance, he tried to gain entry again. Didn't work. Once he was given entry graciously, then repentance follows that. So that's that practical implication. That's why, to me, in most of my writing has become practical theology. Because a theology that's not practical, that doesn't lead to that kind of preaching, is, is already um, a, a, a twisted theology. And it removes the burden, doesn't it? Where, in other words, yeah. instead of feeling like, in order for God to accept me, I must do something. And, of course, we never do it quite right well, or right. well enough, yeah. and so yeah. we never feel like we're accepted. But, really, the good yeah. news is that we can no, we are already accepted. Yeah. We are already yeah. forgiven. And now in the knowledge and the security of that, we can go about doing those but righteous remember my things. analogy of the adopted child, you see. The, the child is not simply rescued from the orphanage and given a wallet, said, you know, go out and spend the money you want, however you want it. The child is brought into a family so that uh, the, the adoption that Paul likes to use as a, as a metaphor there, we're, we're adopted, we're brought back in to a family that means that believing uh, is living in relationship. Uh, now, living in relationship carries with it certain things that we believe about that. So the creed comes along as a way in which we affirm, yeah, this is, this is true, what we, what, we, what we live is true. But if you simply want it to be truth and not living it, it's no longer true. And that's where, that's where the postmodern comes in. The postmodern 
tendencies to say, you know, modernity that came out of Europe and the Enlightenment took truth and placed it up here as an abstract kind of propositional thing. We're more interested in, in meaning than truth. If something is true but it's not meaningful. And people say, well, that's all relativism then. That's purely subjective. Oh, no. Uh, the, the reality of God, self-revelation, if it's not meaningful to our lives, the truth of it is irrelevant. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, that had to have meaning for them. Jesus said, are you going to leave also the rest of the people I've left? Peter said, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. No, we're going to hang in there. Uh, so uh, there, there's uh, an aspect of so-called postmodernity we have to look at carefully because uh, aspects of it are, are more biblical than simply the old modernity. A lot of the theology that I learned was out of modernity, simply abstract truth and doctrine. And therefore, to, to get back uh, is to get back into what I call a kind of pre-modernity, get back into the biblical narrative. That's my book on emerging theology. Um, in your book, The Emergent Theology for Emerging Churches, um, Brian McLaren wrote the introduction. Yes. And he's, uh, he's well known for... Uh, quite a number of books. Brian's uh, first book that, that struck a chord was uh, A New Kind of Christian. And again, it was narrative form, story form, in which uh, uh, a person was having to move out of legalism into the freedom of the gospel. And uh, in that, uh, that led Brian to begin to continue to pursue this line of thought that what we need here in our so-called postmodern culture is to uh, thread our way through the labyrinth of doctrines and belief systems that separate people. We need to find some common ground of grace for that. And that's led, of course, to his um, raising concerns with people that he's not orthodox enough. But again, uh, he loves Jesus and he is concerned that we, again, not allow these doctrinal divisions to divide us up. These things, we, we can talk about those. He said, ask me about the universal in hell. He said, you know, I'm willing to talk with you about that, but uh, I'm not ready to make that the litmus test for who's a Christian. We know who a Christian is. They are the ones that are brought by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to, to love the Father. We know that. And the emergent church then, how would you describe it? I picked up the term emergent church, of course, from the contemporary literature on this. But uh, I thought, um, where's, the, where's the biblical narrative of that? I go back to Antioch over and against Jerusalem. I say Jerusalem was a legalistic community. Unless you're circumcised, you cannot believe. They came up to Antioch, uh, Paul says in Galatians, and uh, the Christians up there, the Gentiles and the Jews, were all eating together. And uh, when they came up, um, and started preaching, no, you can't eat with these uncircumcised Gentiles. Um, Peter withdrew. Peter wouldn't eat with the Christian Gentiles. And Paul said, even Barnabas was carried away by that false gospel. And Paul said, I said to Peter, to his face before them all, that's heretical. That legalism is heretical. It's contrary to the gospel. So that Antioch is the place where that uh, gospel of freedom came out of grace 
And I traced that whole thing through my book, uh, Emergent Theology, came out of Antioch, um, in which it's the Holy Spirit that comes through the narrative of uh, the life of Christ that liberates you from that. Always under attack by the legalists from Jerusalem. Now, I've caricatured Jerusalem a bit, but uh, certainly that's true, that uh, the ones that attacked Paul attacked him by virtue of legalistic grounds. You're not keeping the Sabbath. You're not, uh, you should be circumcised. Paul's theology was eschatological. That is to say, uh, the Christ that he knew was the Christ already ascended into heaven. And Paul wasn't simply a witness of the historical resurrected Christ. He is a witness to the Christ who is risen and is coming. So Paul said it's the coming Christ that's our criterion. Through the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the coming Christ. So the church is emerging. It's not emerging from the past. It's emerging from the future. And that's why it's changing. And that's why the, the church, the last chapter in my book, uh, is that it's about the... Uh, uh, the church that's ahead of us, not just the church behind mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. To go back and say the church should be just like it was in the first century, no, no. The church should be like what it should be in the final century when Jesus yeah. comes. When Jesus comes, you want to say, yeah, that's what I had in mind. I want yeah. women to be free to preach. I had that in mind all along. I'm glad you finally discovered that. <laughs> I want Gentiles uncircumcised to be part. Circumcision is over. I'm glad you discovered that. So if you take the emerging church from the future, as Paul said, that's the biblical paradigm for that. It's not emerging out of modernity. It's emerging out of uh, the, the God's future in that sense. Paul made concessions for the sake of ministry. He had Timothy circumcised because his mother was Jewish. He said, that'll help you gain entree into the Jewish community. So in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Luke says, they tried to get Paul to circumcise Titus. He's also a Gentile. Paul said, no way. I won't circumcise Titus. Because to circumcise Titus is to make a concession to your legalism. I circumcised Timothy as a, an accommodation to the gospel. Now, to me, that all makes sense. But for some people, that's inconsistent. That's illogical. If, 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 if Timothy has to be circumcised, so does everybody else. Paul said, no, it doesn't work that way. Pastorally, we have to make accommodations. In Ephesus, I don't want women to teach and preach because they're carrying in with them a concept of a female deity. Other places in Rome and Macedonia, women can teach and uh, Junia can be an apostle, uh, Romans 16, no problem. So we have to take, but you see, if we take certain texts out of scripture, I do not permit women to teach and have authority over men and make that normative. We've already uh, undercut the gospel of liberation. And Paul had to practice accommodation so that uh, we have people in our churches that carry with them remnants of uh, tradition. And we have to respect that for the sake of uh, not offending them. Paul said, uh, I won't destroy uh, someone's faith for the sake of eating meat. Mm -hmm. I can eat meat offered to idols. Uh, but if there's people that uh, conscience hurts them of that, I won't meet, eat meat off your idols. So I'll, but if I'm their pastor within a year, they'll be liberated from that. Mm. <laughs> so, so they don't uh, remain, or we don't just leave them in that. That's right, time. see. But you see, yeah. you, have to, you have to recognize that people bring with them their own theology. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, to them, it's, it's a matter of sometimes their personal identity. 
And we have to sometimes make accommodations for that. So uh, in our, um, that's why even in the Reformation, there had to be accommodations made to the people that, you know, that one time they thought the sacraments were the means of conveying salvation. So Luther said, we're going to still keep two of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and these will be very important, and the real presence of Christ is there. So because they, they, we can't simply cut people off, learning how to walk in grace, like a child being adopted, it's going to take a while. So almost every one of our denominations has to go through that. But, and to have the wisdom pastorally is to have good theology behind you. If you don't have good theology, you're going to knee-jerk react. If you've got a good theology, you can say, you know, God loves everyone. Jesus has died for everyone. You know, God's a universalist of his love. Now, when it comes to being uh, redeemed and joined to God, then, God is very particular. God's so particular that he doesn't want unredeemed people. And he has a means for redemption and through the Holy Spirit. Yeah, if you're going to sit at the family table, That's, you do have to uh, you, learn how to... Uh, sure, you learn the language, you, you, you learn the, can, uh, the custom, yourself, you learn yeah. how, to, uh, how to respect people and to live within that so that the family has its own rules. But we're talking about a father who is absolutely yeah. committed to your success yes. in sitting at that table. Absolutely, yep. And, and therefore, uh, even that discipline, as the Bible says, is the discipline of a parent. And if you're being disciplined, as Hebrews says, uh, it's a sign that you're a real child, not yeah. illegitimate. So, and people miss that. They, again, they become antinomian. They think, well, if the law no longer is effective, we can do whatever. And Paul had to deal with that in, in Corinthians. Uh, no, there is the law of Christ. And, and unless you interpret faith and relationship with God now in terms of that familial model, being part of the family of God, and the body of Christ is that family, then families have, um, have rules, but the rules are grounded in love, not in law. So in your struggle to learn obedience, you are always embraced by God's love. Yes, and you see, uh, who has learned obedience better than Jesus? Hebrews 4. He, though he was a son, he learned obedience. So Jesus has been there. Jesus was the orphan. Jesus was brought in. Jesus has, has learned to live in family. He, he, he learned to be submissive to his father. If Jesus had been baptized at the age of 12, when he was out there uh, parading all of his uh, intellectual knowledge with the Pharisees in the temple. His mother was not impressed. Mother came back and said, you know, where were you? You, you? you broke the family rules. Didn't you know our father, we were looking for you? Well, Jesus said, well, didn't you know she'd be in my father's house? She wasn't impressed by that at all. She scolded him. Luke said, he went back and was obedient. He didn't show up again for 18 years. 18 years later, at the age of 30, he suddenly shows up with John the Baptist. Now he's ready to be baptized. The obedience that took him from his baptism to the cross, he learned at home with his parents. So uh, whatever obedience is required of us, uh, we already have the obedience of Jesus to empower us. I don't have to be obedient in order to be accepted by Jesus. By the Holy Spirit, I'm brought into the life of Jesus, and his obedience it empowers me, is the motive for my own. 
So that's the difference between simply preaching legalism and conditional uh, obedience as to uh, the, the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ is not freedom from obedience. It's a gracious obedience given to us to empower us. And that's, that's the Bart, that's Torrance. That's all that Torrance is trying to say. That whatever's required of us uh, by God has been uh, accepted and fulfilled by us, by God himself on our behalf. You've been watching You're Included, a production of Grace Communion International.